but what exactly does that mean? So what does it mean, and why do we need to do it? I'm going to answer the second question first. Why do we need to do it? This was partly answered last week as we looked at Psalm 136 and attempted to answer the question, why should we praise our God? And the answer we looked at last week was twofold. We should praise him for who he is, and we should praise him for what he has done for us. And we talked last week about how easily we forget. We forget who God is. We forget what he has done for us. So we praise him. We gather as his people to worship him week after week because we are forgetful people. And we need to be reminded by God and by one another both who he is and what he has done for us. It's really the answer to the why do we need to preach the gospel to ourselves question. It's because we forget. That's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. So in Psalm 103, we're going to see David preaching to his own soul, reminding himself who God is and what God has done for him, then calling God's people to join in, and then finally calling all of creation to bless the Lord. So let's go to God's word together as we see this unfold here in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord. O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels. You mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord. I love Psalm 103. 
I think it's my favorite psalm of all the 150 psalms. And I feel like I really needed Psalm 103 and the truths of Psalm 103 to impact my heart this week. When I was in college, my, the pastor of the church we went to said, uh, talked about a, a boomerang message. He said it's one that you, you throw out there to the people, but it, it comes back and it hits you, right? That's what this is for me. And I think it always should be that, right? But in particular, this week, I think this is true for me. And I hope that the Lord encourages you, encourages your hearts uh, this morning as he has encouraged mine this week as I've been digging into Psalm 103. If you're following along in the outline, we're going to look at four uh, different parts about preaching to our souls. First, preach the Lord's benefits to your soul. We see this in verses 1 through 5. I love the first verse of this psalm. David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. It's an imperative. It's a command. David is commanding his own soul to praise or to bless the Lord. Walter Brueggemann in his commentary on the Psalms says, The formula, bless the Lord, O my soul, is so familiar to us that we do not notice how odd it is. It is the self summoning the self to praise, i.e. the self reminding the self of the fact that all of life must be finally referred to God's goodness. This hymn begins with the worshiper talking to himself. And you might think that it's only crazy people that talk to themselves. But David here talks to himself by preaching to his own soul. And we should do the same. We should talk to ourselves in this way. We should preach to our own souls. But how do we do that? And what does it mean to preach the gospel to ourselves? To preach to our own souls? To answer the question that we asked earlier. A couple things, I think. First, and we already talked about this, we preach to our souls who God is. We remind ourselves of who he is. And James's question that he had there in the catechism about what is God, great question to remind ourselves of who he is. And here we say, we, hear, we see David saying, bless his holy name. In Scripture, God's name is tied to his character. It's not just a title, it's a description of who he is. So his holy name is who he is. And we'll see this exemplified below in verse 8. Also, we need to preach to our souls what God has done for us. We need to remind ourselves who he is and what he has done for us. It starts in verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. In other words, you say to yourself, soul, remember what the Lord has done for you. Remember his benefits. Do not forget. David goes on in verses 3 to 5 to list five things, five benefits. This could be an entire sermon series all in itself. I'm trying to pack it here into one message, so bear with me as we go through these five things. And really, I think this is 
this is David's personal testimony of what God has done for him. And it's basically a retelling of David's plea for mercy and his confession of sin in Psalm 51, which James shared with us a couple weeks ago. The first benefit is forgiveness of all your iniquities. David uses three synonymous words here in Psalm 103. We see it in these verses. We see iniquities. um, And then down in verses 10 and 12, we're going to see the words sin and transgression. So these three words, iniquities, sins, and transgressions, are all synonymous words. In Psalm 51, David said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's basically saying, forgive and cleanse and wash away all of my wrongdoing. Anything that I've done wrong, it's an all-encompassing way to, to talk about our need for forgiveness. And as we will see in a little bit, this is a complete and a finished forgiveness and cleansing. That's the first benefit that David praises God for. The second benefit is that he heals all your diseases. And in the Old Testament, healing a lot of times related to physical healing, the healing of wounds or the healing of diseases. But other times, as I believe it is here, it's a spiritual healing. In Psalm 147 verse 3, it says, the Lord heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. God healing our broken hearts is not something physical that happens to our bodies. We're not promised physical healing in this life. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that God is going to take away all your pain, all your physical pain. Instead, we see those who walk with God getting busted hips like Jacob, getting sores from head to toe like Job, getting thorns in the flesh like Paul. And any manner of execution that was experienced by Jesus' disciples. I don't know about you, but I'll take a healed, broken heart and save the physical healing for my new body. The third benefit He redeems your life from the pit. This word here for redeem is the same word that's used by the Lord in Exodus chapter 6. When he tells Moses that he has heard the groaning of the people who were slaves in Egypt and he has remembered his covenant. He tells Moses to go to this people and to say these words. I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, i.e. the pit, right? He redeemed them from the pit. And David knew in writing this, David knew that he and the people of Israel that he was leading as their king— He knew that they were the beneficiaries of this actual physical deliverance and this redemption from Egypt. But it is a deliverance and a redemption that foreshadowed the great work of redemption and deliverance that Jesus would accomplish for us on the cross. 
So it looks back to the Exodus, and it also points us forward to the cross. And we sit here today as beneficiaries of that redemptive work. Having been been delivered from the pit of sin and death and bondage to Satan. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, for redeeming us. The fourth benefit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Remember who's writing this. David, the king, right? He wore an actual physical crown. And he was promised that a descendant of his would sit on the throne forever. And David is saying, it's not that physical crown that is his greatest need. He doesn't rejoice in the physical earthly crown. But that God has crowned him with steadfast love and mercy. Think about the irony of that for a minute. David knew that the steadfast love and the mercy of God were so much greater that he needed those so much more than any power, any authority he had as an earthly king. Christian, you are crowned as a son or a daughter of the king, the king of kings. He has crowned you with his steadfast love and his mercy, which are totally undeserved, just as they were by David But they are totally, freely, and joyfully given to you. Preach that to your soul. Remind yourself of that truth. The fifth benefit. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This word here for satisfies, it's usually used in reference to eating. Uh, In reference to food and eating until you are full in a physical sense. But it also has a spiritual sense as it is here. Psalm 90 verse 14. This is the prayer of Moses. He says, satisfy us in the morning with, and he doesn't say manna, right? He doesn't say satisfy us with physical food. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. I love that connection that Moses makes with the daily prayer, God satisfy me today so that I may rejoice and be glad all my days. There's that ongoing need of, of being satisfied by the Lord day by day, being satisfied with his steadfast love. Again, we need to preach that to our souls. We need to remind our souls of that day after day. Preach that to yourself every morning. God, satisfy me today with your steadfast love. Well, there's a lot here. Just does a very brief overview of those five things. We could, again, we could dig into all five of those. But I want to just give a practical application of of what does that look like. Uh, Tim Keller has a a great little book, a yearly, uh, a year of daily devotions in the psalm, the songs of Jesus. There's a short uh, little d- half-page uh, devotional, and then there's a prayer at the end. And speaking of these five verses, he titles it, Praying the Gospel. He says, here is how to work the gospel into one's own heart until it transforms. 
It happens through inward dialogue, speaking directly and forcefully to your own heart, rather than just listening to it. Biblical meditation, unlike the popular varieties, is not a relaxation technique for emptying the mind, but rather one that fills it with truth, using thought and memory to set your heart on fire. And then listen to his prayer. He says, Lord, I confess how much of my fear, anger, anxiety, and discouragement is wholly due to my forgetting your benefits, forgetting all you've given me and promised me in Christ. My mind knows, but my heart forgets I'm forgiven, delighted in, guaranteed a crown, a feast. Forgive me and help me speak to my soul until strength is renewed. Amen. Brothers and sisters, may that be the cry of our hearts as well as we preach to our own souls. Second thing, preach the Lord's character and saving deeds to your soul. We see this in verses 6 through 14. There's some overlap here in these verses with what we've already seen about who God is and what he has done for us. Verse 6 here is another reference to the Lord as king. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 89, 14, uh, says that justice and righteousness are the foundation of the Lord's throne. Okay, so speaking about who he is as the king. So here it says the Lord works righteousness and justice i.e. from his throne as he sits as the king. He works those things for all who are oppressed. And clearly there's a connection here with with the Exodus in verse 7. Moses and the people of Israel as they were slaves in Egypt and as they were oppressed. God worked righteousness and justice. So this is redemption and deliverance language. Then we come to verse 8. Verse 8 is... I think my favorite description of, of who the Lord is in all of Scripture says that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And this is taken from a beautiful passage in Exodus chapter 34. The context of Exodus 34 is that Moses had been up on the mountain, he'd been up on Mount Sinai, God gave him the Ten Commandments. In chapter 32, Moses comes down, and the people of Israel have built and are worshiping a golden calf. So Moses gets a little irritated, gets a little hot under the collar, smashes the the tablets down into, into pieces, and then intercedes for the people. Moses goes before the Lord, has this long back and forth, and finally he asks the Lord to show him his glory. And God says, I will show you my glory, but you cannot see my face. I'm going to hide you in the rock, and you will only be able to see me as I pass by. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And we're going to see the opposite of of this in verse 17. We're going to see the opposite of visiting iniquity to to the following generations. Then Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And do you remember what happened to Moses after that encounter with the Lord? His face shone so brightly because of the glory of God that he had to cover his face with a veil because the people were afraid. And we might say to ourselves, well, that was Moses. Or that was David. They were these super holy guys who were way closer to God than I can ever be. Wrong! You know what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3? The veil that covered Moses' face is like a spiritual veil that keeps people from seeing God's glory. But if we are in Christ, that veil is removed. And we reflect the glory of the Lord to the world around us. Paul then goes on to talk about that great reconciling work of God that Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. And David didn't obviously understand how all of this was playing out. But his description in verses 9 through 14 of how verse 8 plays out is a perfect description of how the Father has dealt with us on behalf of his Son. Verse 9, it says, He will not always chide. This word here can be translated as accuse. It is courtroom language. It's usually used of making an accusation. God will no longer accuse us. Instead, he will plead our case on our behalf, even though we don't deserve it. He won't be angry with us forever. Second half of verse 9. Nor will he deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. Verse 10. What do you think of when you hear the possibility of being repaid according to your iniquities. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, right? I'm in trouble. That's the idea of karma in Buddhism, or the scales of judgment in Islam, or every other worldview that has some way of you paying God back for the things that you have done that are wrong. That is not the biblical worldview. That's not the gospel. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. And it's not just opposite, it's radically opposite. And this psalm points it out. There's something, not to get too technical here, but there's something in the Hebrew that we can't really see in the English that I think brings this out that is really amazing. There's something about Hebrew words that is um, not necessarily unique to Hebrew, Um, It's probably more common than it is in English, but sometimes the same word can be translated in two different ways, and it has totally opposite meanings based on how it's used. Uh, You think about the word cleave in English. The word cleave can mean to to divide or to separate, or it can mean to bring together, to leave and cleave. So it it can be separating or bringing together. Now, you know, imagine learning English as a second language and being like, that makes no sense. Um, And I'm sure there's good historical reasons for how that came to be. But it's a pretty common thing in Hebrew. And in Psalm 103, there's an amazing picture of this. 
in verse 2, the word benefits and the word repay in verse 10 have the same root word. Okay, so benefits and repay. In verse 2, the word translated benefits, it occurs 18 times in the Old Testament. Only two times is it translated benefits. All the rest of the times, it has the idea of repayment or recompense. Okay? So keep that in mind. Verse 10, the word translated repay, is, has the opposite sense. Uh, it's mostly translated as repay, but in some cases it has the opposite sense, like in Psalm 13, 6, where it says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So that dealt bountifully is the same as the word repay, and it's just used in the opposite way. Are you following me here? David is telling himself not to forget the Lord's benefits, which is usually a word that's translated as repayment, getting what you deserve, if not for the mercy and grace and slowness to anger and abounding steadfast love of the Lord. He doesn't repay us, but instead he deals bountifully with us, as we see in verses 11 to 13. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. His steadfast love and his forgiveness know no limits. David uses this imagery of the heavens and the earth and east to the west. We can't measure it. We can't even fathom how far the distance is. In verse 13, it says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. His compassion toward us is that of a good and loving and merciful father. Now, how does this inform your approach to God in worship? When you sing how deep the father's love for us Do you do so with the confidence that you're a child of God who is loved as high as the heavens are above the earth and forgiven as far as the east is from the west? Do you preach these truths to your own soul? And not just hear when the professional preachers tell you these things. Do you preach to your own soul Monday through Saturday? I'm not off the hook here just because I get paid to come up here and preach on Sundays. I need to preach to my own soul as well so that I don't forget the benefits of the Lord, which is really easy to do. It's easy to forget the benefits of the Lord when things are going well and I feel like it all depends on me. It's easy to forget the benefits of the Lord when things are not going well and I feel like it all depends on me. Brothers and sisters, the truth is that it is all grace all the time. Preach that to your souls. Remind your soul of his benefits. That he does not repay you according to what you deserve. But he gives you exactly the opposite of what you deserve. This becomes more clear in verses 15 through 18 as we see. Preach your own mortality to your soul. Verses 15 and 16. As for man, his days are like grass. 
He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. This contrast here between the shortness of our lives and the eternal promises of God is seen in these verses. We need to preach verses 15 and 16 to our souls. This life on earth is not forever. Nobody is going to remember you. Nobody is going to remember me in a hundred years. Think about that. Now maybe, you know, maybe James is going to write some like theology book that's still being read in a hundred years and people will be like, oh yeah, I've heard that name before. But most of us, nobody's going to give a rip, right? That we ever existed. (laughs) Think about that. Think about our own mortality. Think about our own insignificance in the grand scheme of things. I'm not saying our lives are not important. But I'm saying we need to remind ourselves of how short they are. We need to preach to our souls our own mortality. When our bodies start to break down. When those around us start to die. But don't wait until your 70s or your 80s to start to grasp this reality. Young people, teenagers, college students, young and middle-aged adults, preach your own mortality to your soul. Start now. Remind yourself of how short your life, your life is and may be. And then preach the contrasting truth to that, which is seen in verse 17. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. God promises here to be faithful to his covenant promises. Okay? Now, there's not going to be anyone in 100 years alive who remembers me unless, like, one of my kids lives to be, like, 120 or something crazy. Um, but this idea of righteousness to children's children, this idea of passing on the blessing of the Lord, this idea of, of living out our faith so that the coming generation will tell the coming generation will tell the coming generation, I don't care if they, like, say, oh, yeah, great-grandpa Josh, and remember me. But there is this idea here of how God's steadfast love continues on throughout the generations. This is why we're so adamant about teaching our children about the Lord, about bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. One other thing uh, in these verses, you may have already noticed this as we were reading it and going back through it. Don't get hung up, verses 17 and 18 here, don't get hung up on these phrases, those who fear him, who keep his covenant, who remember to do his commandments. These are not conditional promises. That's what that whole benefits and repayment thing was all about. You don't do these things, and you, you're not in God's favor because you first did these things. You do these things because of God's mercy and his grace. You do these things because of what he has already done for you. 
So we shouldn't read these and be like, that's works righteousness. No, we should fear the Lord. We should keep his covenant and his commandments. That's what we do in response to who God is and what he has done for us. We cannot separate those things in our Christian lives. And this whole psalm is all about mercy and grace. David's whole testimony, think about it. David's whole story was about not being repaid for the way that he had sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba. David, I mean, David deserved death for what he had done. He could have been put to death for what he had done. And God had mercy on him. God did not treat him according to what he deserved. And David was confident in who he was by the grace and the mercy and the steadfast love of the Lord. Not in his own ability to obey the Lord. Brothers and sisters, it is the same with us. We fear the Lord and we keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments because of who he is and because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And we do so by the power of the spirit that lives within us. And it is with this kind of confidence that David was able to preach to all of creation. He didn't only preach to his own soul. He preached to all of creation. And that's our last point. Verses 19, 19 through 22. Begins here with an acknowledgement of God's sovereign reign as king of the universe. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Again, David is the one acknowledging this. David, who is perhaps the most powerful king that is alive in the world at this time, and he is saying, the Lord is the king. The Lord's kingdom rules over all. Not Judah's wimpy kingdom as they're surrounded by their enemies. The Lord's kingdom rules over all. And then there's this declaration to the angels and to the heavenly hosts. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. David then ends this amazing song by reminding his own soul once again. Bless the Lord, O my soul. As we come this morning to this table, we have a chance to preach to our souls To remind ourselves that it is by grace and grace alone that we are invited to come to this table. It is by grace that we see the benefits of the Lord on display and are invited in to partake of them. The forgiveness of our sins because Christ's body was broken and his blood was poured out. The healing of our diseases, of our broken hearts, The redemption of our lives from the pit, from the pit of sin and slavery to sin and death and and Satan. Being crowned with steadfast love and mercy. Being called children of God. And then being satisfied with good. Satisfied, eating until we're full. This points us forward to a greater reality. It points us forward to the the banquet that we will partake in. Points us forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Where we will be satisfied 
forever. And this meal, this meal is just a tiny foretaste of that. As you take a little tiny piece of bread, be reminded of what that little taste points you forward to. So come to the table. Come expectantly. Come and celebrate the the benefits that you have in Christ. Come, eat, and drink, and remember what he has done for you. This table is open to all of those who are professing Christians, who have trusted Christ, who are baptized and are in good standing in a gospel-preaching church. Uh, You don't have to be a member here at Livingstone Church. It is open to to believers who meet those uh, criteria. Uh, If you're not a Christian, uh, we would ask that you would uh, stay in your seat and uh, if you want to talk to us more about what it means, uh, what, what we believe about taking the Lord's Supper, what it means to be a Christian, we would love to do that. If I could have those who are serving come down at this time.